In 1840, the 20-year-old dandy and notorious rake Sir Robert Warboys heard the eerie rumours about the Berkeley Square thing in a Holborn tavern one night and laughingly dismissed the tales as unadulterated poppycock. Sir Robert's friends disagreed with him and dared him to spend a night in the haunted second-floor room in Berkeley Square. Warboys raised his flagon of ale in the air and announced, I wholeheartedly accept your preposterous harebrained challenge. That same night, Sir Robert visited the haunted premises to arrange an all-night vigil with the landlord. The landlord tried to talk Sir Robert out of the dare, but the young man refused to listen and demanded to be put up for the night in the haunted room. The landlord finally gave in to Sir Robert's demands, but stipulated two conditions. If the young man saw anything unearthly, he was to pull a cord that would ring a bell in the landlord's room below. Secondly, Sir Robert would have to be armed with a pistol throughout the vigil. The young libertine thought the conditions were absurd, but agreed to them just to get the landlord out of his hair. The landlord handed Warboys a pistol and left as a clock in the room chimed the hour of midnight. Sir Robert sat at a table in the candlelit room and waited for the thing to put in an appearance. 45 minutes after midnight, the landlord was startled out of his sleep by the violent jangling of the bell. A single gunshot in the room above echoed throughout the house. The landlord raced upstairs and found Robert sitting on the floor in the corner of the room with a smoking pistol in his hand. The young man had evidently died from traumatic shock, for his eyes were bulged and his lips were curled from his clenched teeth. The landlord followed the line of sight from the dead man's terrible gaze and traced it to a single bullet hole in the opposite wall. He quickly deduced that Warboys had fired at the thing to no avail. What's the difference between an urban legend and folklore, do you reckon? Very good question. I would have guessed urban legend is more local. See, I was thinking that it could just be time. Oh, that's, yeah, actually, that's a good point. What used to be an urban legend sort of metastasizes into something that people believe at a larger scale. Sure. But maybe there's something about modern-day scepticism that prevents us from sort of truly believing and spreading the stories like we used to. Right, sure. Okay. Today, we're going to discuss a single building, which is home to more urban legends than most entire towns. And we're going to try to pin down what single explanation could link all of these different stories. Fantastic. Now, you've lived in London. I have. Can you tell me anything about Mayfair? No. Most expensive square on a Monopoly board. Well, do you know why that is? I'm guessing it's quite expensive to live there. It's 
one of the most expensive boroughs in London, and sort of by extension, one of the most expensive areas to live in the world. Yeah. Uh, the buildings around Barclay Square in Mayfair were first constructed in the late 18th and early 19th century. Mayfair is actually named after a local Mayfair, but it was banned due to the fact it disturbed the peace. Oh, wow. That's how well-to-do this neighbourhood is. That is a, that is a, <laughs> a well-to-do neighbourhood. And there's one particular building on Barclay Square that's thought to be the oldest unaltered building in London. 50 Barclay Square is an impressively historic building, and this probably plays no small part in the number of legends that surround it. Britain's shortest ever serving Prime Minister, as you obviously know, is called... Oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> George Canning, yes. obviously. Oh, on the tip of my tongue. And he lived in the house until 1827, mm-hmm. a, a fact which is commemorated with a blue plaque on the front of the building. Ah, right. It has since then passed through many, many different hands, most recently being owned by an antique book dealers called Mags Bros. Excellent. Now, the earliest story I could find concerned a girl called Adeline, who inhabited the attic room. She was cruelly abused by her uncle and was eventually driven to suicide by throwing herself from the window of her fourth-floor bedroom. Oh, wow. What a what a happy story. The first reported sighting of her ghost was in 1789. It was in the papers. Uh, and in subsequent years, she has been seen dozens of times hanging from the window and screaming, about to drop to her doom. Right. Wow. And so, th- are these? Are these? Uh, these are just. Um, would these have been reported? People sort of uh, in, I suppose, penny dreadfuls. Yeah, but also in the papers. It's in the Times. Wow. People genuinely believed these stories. It, it's not a pulp paperback situation. It was news. Right. Other ghosts are actually also said to inhabit the same room. So some people say that there was a boy locked in the room. For years, his only contact with the outside world being when food was pushed through a slot in the door. The isolation drove him mad, and he haunts the building to this day. There's a lot of um, a lot of child abuse in these in these haunted house stories. Well, this is just one room in one house in London. Yeah, we're going to move down a floor to the second floor. Uh-huh. And that's sort of where most of the stories center. And this is where the nameless thing is said to attack its victims. There's something deeply spooky about calling something the nameless thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, to not not sort of sully its, 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 its hauntedness, its, its terror with even a no name will will cover it there uh, is something. i will confess yeah. that there's an irony to naming something nameless but <laughs> yeah very true in 18, uh, 1872 an aristocrat and politician lord george littleton stayed a night in the house for a bet which as you might be able to tell is a recurring theme right he set up yeah. a bed in the attic where he planned to sleep for the night to test his resolve against the horror said to reside there. He didn't believe any of the stories, but brought a shotgun anyway. That's fair. During the night, 
An apparition in the form of a brown, tendrilled, misty mass appeared, and Littleton fired his gun before fleeing the building. In the morning light, he looked for what he'd fired at, but there were no remains or proof that he'd hit anything at all. Littleton would later say that the upper rooms were supernaturally fatal to body and mind. Wow. And this is an educated person. Sure. And so so he has quite a a vivid description Mm. of this nameless creature. Uh, Is it corroborated? I'm going to give you a couple more descriptions, and then we'll see if we can work out what it is. Right. So in 1879, seven years later, a new family moved into the house, and one of the daughters was due to have her fiancé visit. The maid was sent upstairs to set up the attic room as a guest room, and soon she was heard screaming. When the family ran upstairs to see what the commotion was, they found her on the floor, backed into a corner, repeating over and over again, Do not let it touch me. She died in an asylum the following day. Seemingly unperturbed by the incident, the man for whom the room was being prepared, uh, a gentleman by the name of Captain Kentfield, which is a wonderful name. Excellent name. Still planned to spend the night in that room. In the evening, he headed upstairs with a candle, and the household reports that they heard him close the door. Roughly 30 minutes later, terrible screams came from the room, followed by a gunshot. The help rushed upstairs to help him, but found him dead on the floor, his face twisted in terror. And these go on. There are so many instances of people staying in the house and dying in fear. On Christmas Eve, same year, two sailors, Edward Blunden and Robert Martin, arrived in London, but they had no money for lodgings. So they wandered the streets trying to find an empty building in which to camp up for the night. They eventually found their way to Berkeley Square, and seeing that number 50 was obviously vacant, they decided to spend the night there. They settled for a second floor bedroom, and soon Martin was asleep. But Blunden was restless and frightened. He could hear footsteps in the corridor, and soon the door opened. As Blunden watched, a dark and shapeless form entered the room. Blunden panicked, he grabbed for a fire poker in the fireplace. This noise woke up Martin, who saw a massive tendril strangling Blunden. Fearing for his safety, Martin took the opportunity to run out of the bedroom door, down the stairs, and out of the building. What a hero. (laughs) Well, he ran into a police constable. Ah, okay. And he relayed the story, and the two men went back to 50 Berkeley Square. What they found was Blunden dead on the pavement. He had either jumped out of or been thrown out of the second floor window, his body crushed by the fall. Now, there are some other reports that suggested that he tripped and died of fright as he fled the building, or a more gory version that he was found dismembered in the basement. Or a slight variation that he jumped out of the uh, second floor window and was impaled on the wrought iron fence. Oh, wow. So, Josh, 
I was just going to say there's there's a certain so there's this inconsistencies with the way that he's found. Presumably, there were a body was discovered. Yes. Part of the problem is that a lot of people tell these stories. They're urban legends at yeah. their heart, and sure. in the telling, they change. Right. I think we can be reasonably certain that this man died. How yeah. he died is completely up for interpretation. Yeah. So, Josh, what do you mm-hmm. think that the nameless thing of Berkeley Square might be? So, let's gather our our evidence that we have from these various stories. Uh, we have, uh, I believe it was Brown uh f- from one we have tendrils has has come up a couple of times shapeless mm. tends to be um a big factor but you could put that that down to the dark misty has come uh, up a couple of times misty huh um i mean it sounds like some kind of swamp thing now that's surprising and we're going to come back to that because that's okay a, a conclusion that several other people have come to well, I have always been quite the the fairy detective. Um, so the the most standard uh, interpretation is that it's a ghost or some kind of psychic sure. manifestation caused by the the pain and suffering in the building. Either the the souls of the people who were so cruelly abused were trapped there, or their pain and terror was somehow imprinted onto the building. Right. That's a fairly standard explanation for ghost stories. Sure. I'm sure we'll encounter that again. It's The idea that stones can remember is a, a, a common idea, especially uh, in the 19th century spiritualist movement. Mm-hmm. But perhaps it could be something a little more physical. Some people believe that the sewers around Berkeley Square are home to a semi-aquatic creature that feeds on the building's rats and emerges to attack those that remain in the house at night. The tendrils that many victims claim to have seen could have been tentacles, suggesting that the creature could be some kind of freshwater octopus. (laughs) Now that started scary. And then I said the words freshwater octopus. And that that really lets the winds out of your spooky sails. (laughs) It's unfortunate because actually the the octopus is is a rather frightening animal, but it does not have a frightening name. No, there's There's no way to make that sound scary. No. And also, for some reason, freshwater is just less scary. (laughs) It is. It's just gentler. Because an octopus has, has a beak. It's got yep. tentacles, it's got suckers and claws, and I think very few people from the 1800s would have ever seen an octopus, or would know what one is. Yeah, yeah. And I think that describing an octopus that you saw in the dark would be very, very difficult if you had no points of reference. Absolutely. Calling it a brown tendrilled thing. Yep. It's not awful. No. Shapeless. Yeah. I don't know what shape you'd use as a as a point of reference, as you say. So I 
I think that's an interesting idea. Whether I believe that there is a freshwater octopus that kills people in Berkeley Square <laughs> is a different question. But I love that idea, though, <laughs> in a in a twisted way. It's, the idea of being attacked by an octopus while you're trying to go to sleep is profoundly scary. Oh, horrifying. But, yeah. you're right, the word octopus is the opposite of that. <laughs> so, Josh. Yes. You used to live in London. I did, yes. Not quite Mayfair. No. To what degree do you think you are at risk from the nameless thing of 50 Berkeley Square? I mean, I don't... I. I don't feel too much at risk of octopus attack if it is indeed an octopus. But perhaps that'll, you know, I'll let my guard down as a result should I ever find myself in this particular hotel room. I mean, I'm fascinated by it. And the fact that it it's is not a such, hotel room, it is a bookshop. Sorry, the, no, sorry, the, the, this, this, this house um, but that people have stayed in in order to, you know, witness uh these these creatures and ghosts and that there's such a concentration of supernatural activities there um i have never stayed the night in a haunted house um because i like to think of myself as rational but i never want to test that yeah it's not really especially because so many of these stories are yeah. someone going ha there's no such thing as ghosts and then being completely yeah. destroyed yeah by they're the ones that get it entity. in the neck you don't want to be the doubting thomas in that story no so in that for for those reasons um i would i would not put myself in in that position uh yeah see i i agree i'm scared of it yeah <laughs> but am i threatened by it you just don't have to you just have to be you know not don't get ahead of yourself don't get too brash don't take up a dare with a shotgun just don't take any dare with a shotgun. I feel like it's a fine rule. No. If, if a shotgun is part of the conditions of the dare, maybe not. Maybe don't do it. So I think because of how sensible and cowardly I am, I, I am relatively risk-free. Also, this has come up before, but the fact that you're hundreds of miles away from the only location in which the creature operates... Yes, it gives you a fair buffer. This is true. This is true. Um, well, thank you very much for having this little chat about Barclay Square. If thank any you. of the listeners wanted to leave a review on iTunes, that'd be super, super helpful. Or tell a friend, introduce this to other people. It really helps us get out there a bit more. You can also tweet us, or you can email us at uh, BritishBestury at gmail.com. Let us know what you want us to talk about or what thoughts you have about freshwater octopodes. But for the time being, I've been Neil Whitehead. I've been Josh Ogle. And this has been a British bestiary. Bestiary.